0: Thank you, Heather. Good morning again, everybody. Um, So first off, thanks to uh, everybody that came out to the uh, ugly sweater party last night. It was a ton of fun. Do we have some photos from that in there yesterday? I know we were going to talk about this um, in the the little welcome time, but we'll see if we can jump back because I want you to, to understand that there was a Christmas miracle yesterday. You are witnessing the most effective announcement I have ever made in the 13 years of this church. The potluck was on point last night. Um, where's the one with the little sheets of paper? Is that, is that on there somewhere? Okay, so this is at my house afterwards, and this is the spread of all of the different dishes that received votes for best appetizer slash side. And that's fairly representative of the dessert voting and the, uh, the, the entree voting. So that's how many delicious things were on there. I heard some people even interpreted my announcement very literally and were like, we can't bring chips even if it's part of something else. I was like... I'm digging this, this makes me happy. All right, it was awesome. so it was also a volunteer appreciation kind of uh, thing last night. And so if you didn't, um, a lot of people missed their little volunteer appreciation envelopes. Or if you didn't make it last night, there are some envelopes in the back. So go make sure that uh, you check your, you know, find your name uh, and for that. And then our prizes are also out back. There were some amazing costumes and amazing food. So make sure um, you check those and, and get your prizes before you leave. All right, on to the sermon um, So today is the third Sunday of Advent, and next Sunday is Christmas Eve. So next Sunday, we actually get the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve all wrapped up into one, which is going to be fun. Now today, on this third Sunday of Advent, I basically have three things on the agenda. One is to have some fun. Two is to ruin your day after having fun. And then three is to talk about John the Baptist. So are we ready? For those three things. Okay, and I want to do all of those things um, in one way, shape, or form by doing the most obvious thing possible. One, talking about Christmas music, and two, turning it into a competition. So, who's ready for a Kahoot? We usually do the Kahoots on the fourth Sunday of the month when the kids are in here, but because next Sunday is Christmas Eve, We're not going to do a Kahoot on Christmas Eve, so we're going to do one today. Curtis usually gets to all have uh, have all the Kahoot fun. I get to have it today, and we don't need no stinking kids to have a Kahoot, right? So get out your phones and go to Kahoot.it, and soon the game code should be coming up on the screen. You will enter that game code on your phone, and then you will create, hopefully, a church-appropriate screen name. And uh, then we will get started once everyone has had a sufficiently awkward time to come up with their screen names. I should also say, I feel like I need to do a disclaimer anytime we do a Kahoot. Smartphones are the devil. They are ruining our society. This is not a tacit affirmation that you should be staring at your phone all the time. You probably should throw it away as soon as you leave here today. But for now, we're going to have some fun. All right. I'll give you another minute. Frodo lives. I love it. I've been reading The Lord of the Rings, trying to finish it by Christmas. I'm on the third one. Santa's Helper. That's a good one. Let's Go Canes. Boring. No one cares about hockey. Um, <laughs> Buddy the Elf. Cool. Little Boo. All right. Lloyd Christmas. Well played. That's got to be Luke. That's my boy. All right. Uh, Teast. All right. Where's Beast? We need Beast. There's Beast. Awesome. Okay. Are we, I'm gonna continue just, you know, blabbing for a second so everybody has time. Are we about ready to go? All right, let's do it. All right. Oh, people are still popping up. I hope we didn't cut anybody off, but we're gonna have some fun regardless. If you missed it, sorry, Charlie. Charlie. All right, I'm going to face this way so we can do this. We're going to have some fun here. All right, here's the quiz. Here we go. The best-selling Christmas album of all time is by what artist? Elvis Presley, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, or Bing Crosby? Hmm. I've stumped you. Usually these happen fast. Only four people got that right. The correct answer is Elvis Presley, who sounds like a hyperventilating hippopotamus when he sings Here Comes Santa Claus. Sorry, that was a personal issue. Okay, moving on to the next thing. Next question. Santa's Helper is in the lead. Question number two. Of the previous four artists, which one does not have a Christmas album in the all-time top 10? Obviously not Elvis. Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, or Bing Crosby? The answer is Bing Crosby, which will be really surprising in just a moment, in just a moment. All right, the next question, who's in the lead right now? Still Santa's helper. All right. Number three, what is the most covered Christmas song of all time? Which means there's the most versions of it. Most people have done it. Is it Silent Night, White Christmas, All I Want for Christmas is You, or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Man, this one took the whole time. The answer is Silent Night. Fun bonus that you won't actually get any points for. Does anyone want to wager a guess as to why Silent Night is the most covered song of all time? Because it's in the public domain and you don't have to pay anybody to sing it. There you go. All right, next question. Santa's helper is still on fire. Question four. How many versions of Silent Night exist? 210, 2,100, 370, or 3,700? We need like Jeopardy music in the background for this. The answer is 3,700. That's a lot of versions of Silent Night, people. All right. Oh, Santa's helper, you dropped. Oilers, (laughs) okay, sorry. Keep it moving, keep it moving. No idea who that could be. The top top two Christmas best-selling singles of all, all time are sung by the same artist. Which artist? Mariah Carey, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, or Elvis Presley? These are singles, not album. Remember. The answer is Bing Crosby. He has the top two singles of all time but doesn't have a top 10 album. I don't understand how that works, but I didn't come up with the information. Okay, next one. Good, we got Oilers out of the top spot. That makes me feel a little bit better. All right, moving on. Turning our attention to streaming, what is the most streamed Christmas song of all time? All I want for Christmas is you, thank you, Curtis. White Christmas, Mistletoe by Justin Bieber or Christmas Tree Farm by Taylor Swift. (laughs) These are taking way longer than they usually do. The answer is, of course, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Santa's Helper back up in the lead here. Question seven, which of the following bands slash artists does not have a single in the top 10 of the most streamed Christmas songs of all time? Bieber, Ariana Grande, Sia, or Sync? My cahoots are hard. It takes y'all way longer to answer the questions. <laughs> the answer is in sync. I know that's a travesty, is it not? Sia's in the top 10, but in sync is not. Makes no sense whatsoever. All right. We need to. Can we get Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays as post service music today, please? That's all right. Uh, which famous boy band put out the, a Christmas album with the song Funky, Funky Christmas on it? Is it New Kids on the Block, In Sync, 98 Degrees, or Backstreet Boys? This is aimed at a very specific age segment of the church. (laughs) New Kids on the Block. Yes, I was going to give bonus points to whoever sings it. We're going to celebrate it with a rhyme. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Next one. Question nine. We're almost to the end. Which famous boy band was the most recent... To release a Christmas album? New Kids on the Block, In Sync, 98 Degrees, or Backstreet Boys? Don't Google it, cheaters. The answer Backstreet Boys. They released a Christmas album in 2021. The title was Irrelevant Christmas. Santa's helpers still up top. All right, next one. Last one, finally, of the top 10 most streamed Christmas songs of all time, how many contain the word Jesus in the lyrics? 10, 5, 2, or 0? y'all are thinking hard on this one. All right. The answer is zero. All right. Let's go on to, uh, who's, who's the winner here? I'm only giving out one prize. I don't give out prizes to first losers. Um, (laughs) Let's go Canes. You lost Jingle, whoever you are. Second place. Who's first place? Santa's Santa's helper. Who's Santa's helper? Excellent. Here you go. What you get is a free uh, whatever you want from the bake sale. Go for it. Um, Which you actually have to eat gluten-free, so that's probably the worst prize possible for you. Um, But feel free to use it for Christmas presents or something. I don't know. Man, nothing is going according to plan today. All right. Okay, so you've probably realized this. Hopefully you had a little fun there. But I, when I do trivia games, I don't just do them for fun. They are elaborate Jedi mind tricks designed to make you think about things you really would prefer not to. And the last question is where I was going with this all along. Of the top 10 most streamed Christmas songs, zero of them ...are about Jesus. Zero of them even mention Jesus' name at any point in time. In fact, I would like to do a closer examination of that actual list. The top ten most streamed Christmas songs of all time. So there they are, right before your eyes. Let's go through them really quickly so we can identify what they are actually about. First, all I want for Christmas is you. Romance song right uh second last christmas by wham sad romance song again santa tell me by ariana grande once again romance song by the way i think this is the only christmas song that has a naughty version on spotify so there's that okay next one it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. This is the version by Michael Blue Play, but of course that's obviously lasted. It's been around for a long time. This song, I don't know. I guess it's about Christmas decorations and ambiance, um, you know, a vague feeling of happiness in your heart around December. Next one, "Rocking around the Christmas tree." Similar kind of thing, right? A Christmas decorations once again, and maybe a party. I don't know, a sentimental feeling that you feel. Next one, Jingle Bell Rock. Once again, a Christmas dancy party this time. Um, we're kind of still in the land of vague, nebulous, happy feelings. Uh, it's the most wonderful time of year. We're continuing that trend of kind of random, vague Christmas ambiance songs with a little extra dose of nostalgia in this one. Then we're on to Mistletoe by Justin Bieber. We're back to romance, people. And then we get to Snowman by Sia, which is again a romance song, but maybe the weirdest Christmas romance song I've ever heard. It's exactly what you would expect from Sia. And then finally, number 10 is Do They Know It's Christmas, the 1980s. 84 version. Now I had actually never heard this song before. I discovered this list and listened to it. Band Aid was like a UK supergroup uh, with like every famous British musician, musician in the early 80s, Sting, Duran Duran, U2, George Michael, etc. And I so I think it was kind of like mainly a UK Europe thing, and it was a charity project to raise funds for hungry people in Africa, which I applaud. I applaud, but um, this song is super weird and cringeworthy. And um, I wanted to talk more about it, but Curtis keeps reminding me that you don't like two hour sermons. And this one, like it was the doozy. It was gonna take a while. Um, So just make a note to listen to it on your own later and tell me whether you think it's as weird and condescending as I do. (sighs) Moving along. Okay, so here's our overall breakdown, people. 50% of the songs on the most streamed list are about romance. 40% are about a vague, sentimental winter nostalgia feeling. And 10% is kind of a weird, self important nod to philanthropy with a little of European guilt stirred in there. Merry freaking Christmas. Also, I realized that an interesting exercise we could do when looking at this list is paying close attention to the years that these songs were first written or produced. All the vague, sentimental American cultural Christmas stuff, you might notice, cluster around the middle of the 20th century, in the 50s and 60s, in the post-World War II economic boom and optimism. But then there's a turn somewhere in the 80s and accelerating into the 90s and 2000s where all the music essentially becomes romantic. Christmas is not in any way, shape, or form the subject of the song. It is just the setting of a love song that could really be about any time. Now, what's the point? Pointing out the increasingly secular nature of Christmas music in our culture. It's kind of low-hanging fruit for an Advent sermon, I realize. And generally speaking, I think we usually just dismiss all of this as just harmless fun, no big deal. But I want to ask a question that you probably don't want to ask. By the way, we're about to enter the ruining your day portion of the sermon. What if there is something more insidious going on? First... To quote one of our favorite authors, James K.A. Smith, who we talk about a lot nowadays, everything is liturgical, meaning that everything, everything we do, everything we experience is a spiritually formational habit that inculcates us into a certain vision of the good life. Everything we do, hear, engage in, imbibe, it shapes us. But on the flip side of that reality, this is also true. To quote Rob Bell and many other theologians as well, everything is spiritual. So everything is liturgical, but everything is also spiritual. Our habits, our actions, our rituals are spiritual. They shape our souls, but they also are a reflection of our souls. I mean, this is that sort of art imitates life, imitates art, imitates life, like circular reality that we talk about all the time. Same kind of thing. Our habits, rituals, behaviors, the media we consume, et cetera, they form this self-reinforcing circle. And this, I would argue, is especially true of music, right? Scientists and historians for a while have been pointing out how central music is to the human brain and human society and human experience as a whole. Music has a privileged place in the human brain and in human memory. This is why anytime I have to alphabetize something, I still sing the alphabet song in my head because there's no way I'd ever remember it without the song. Listening to or playing or singing music, it releases chemicals in our brain, chemicals associated with imagination with building trust, with interpersonal bonding, also with healing, with joy, and with transcendence. Music has a unique relationship to our brains and our souls. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this, written, of course, from the perspective of a demon. So you kind of have to like flip the way that you think about it. But the demon says this, music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, our father being Satan here, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise. I love that quote. According to C.S. Lewis, in other words, music and silence are the language of heaven the language of the human soul. They're an imprint of the image of God upon us. Music has the power to shape our hearts and souls, but it also has the power to express what's already in our hearts and souls. Or to put this another way, we sing about what we worship, and we worship what we sing. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's both a beautiful and terrifying thought. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, sociologist Ernest Becker observed this, that no human society in the history of the world has placed as much emphasis on romantic love as the modern West. According to Becker, humans are wired for meaning and transcendence, But when you remove God from the center of the search for meaning, like we began doing in the Enlightenment, well, nature abhors a vacuum and something has to fill its place. And in modernity, one of the primary things that did this was romantic love. He says this, "...once we realize what the religious solution did, we can see how modern man edged himself into an impossible situation." He still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to be specially good for something truly special. Also, he still had to merge himself with something higher, a self-absorbing meaning in trust and in gratitude, what we saw as the universal motive of the agape merger. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him, as Rank, another philosopher saw, was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love object. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused on one individual. Man now lives in a cosmology of two. To be sure, all through history, there has been some competition between human objects of love and divine ones. But the main difference is that in traditional society, the human partner would not absorb into himself the whole dimension of the divine. In modern society, he does. Modern man fulfills his urge to self-expansion in the love object just as it was once fulfilled in God. In one word, the love object is God. As a Hindu song put it, puts it, my lover is like God. If he accepts me, my existence is utilized. No wonder Rank could conclude that the love relationship of modern man is a religious problem. In other words, culturally, intellectually, as God was removed from our center of meaning, romantic love became our culture's religion, at least one of them, which raises an uncomfortable question about our song list from a few minutes ago. Has our Christmas music actually become music of another religion? Is it not just a harmless pastime, but actually songs to a completely different hope, a completely different vision of the good life? A completely different vision of salvation. If this is true, how darkly ironic of a situation we are currently living in. Now, hopefully, now that I've ruined your day, you're welcome. Hopefully, you're getting that this isn't just about music. The music is a metaphor or a parable of sorts about how people and perhaps even cultures can get lost about how something that starts out about God initially can get hollowed out. And into that empty space, all sorts of shortcuts and cheap imitations, what the Bible used to call idols, can find their way in. And in time when this happens, it can become increasingly difficult for these lost people to even tell the difference between the two. Now, what does this have to do with John the Baptist, the sort of unofficial patron saint of Advent, the person who a friend of mine called this week human Advent, Advent expressed as a human being? Well, I would argue that John was born into a world not so unlike our own. Of course, the details and the expressions were different, right? They didn't have consumer capitalism or romanticism to contend with, but they had many, many other things. And John was born into a world where people had been singing songs that they thought were about God but had actually become, in many instances, songs about something different. The Pharisees were singing songs about piety and observance. The Sadducees were singing songs about ritual and tradition and hierarchy. The Essenes, those desert monastics, they were singing songs about asceticism and separation from the world. The Zealots... Well, they were singing songs about national pride and revolution. And all these things, at one point or another, began ostensibly in faith in God. But over time, they drifted. They became hollowed out. They became ends unto themselves rather than things pointing to God himself. They became shortcuts and cheap substitutes for the radical faith and trust that God was calling his people to. And so, before sending his Messiah into the world, God first sends someone to prepare the way. To prepare people's hearts and minds to receive this beautiful revelation. Have you ever thought about how odd it is that John the Baptist exists in our stories If God wants to send his Messiah in the world, why doesn't he just do it? Why does he need to send someone to prepare the way beforehand? But apparently he did. The primary way that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, for this beautiful new revelation, was by calling people to repentance. Here is when John is introduced to us in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and fire, His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Repentance was apparently a prerequisite, a preparation for being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Repentance, like the word sin, I think has gotten a bad rap in our culture which I think is in part because we have a small, culturally conditioned definition of it. When we hear the word repentance in our culture, we think of confessing individual sins. And we usually assume that it has to come with a lot of guilt and shame. But repentance in the Bible is both less and more than that. The word for repentance in Greek is metanoia, which means to change one's mind or to change one's thinking. Noeo, the verb that we get the noia part from, means to perceive or observe, observe with the eyes specifically, or to notice. It's not really a philosophical word. It's it's an observational word. It's about observing what, is really happening, and just being honest about it. Meta can mean many things, as is the case with all prepositions, but it often means after or above. So it really kind of means to perceive after the fact, or observe things from above, from a more objective vantage point. To go one layer further back, the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuvah. This comes from the Hebrew verb shuv, which literally means to turn or to turn around. It was often actually just used for armies marching to battle for like the moment that they realized, oh, there's way more of them than us. So it's time to teshuvah, to turn around. Go back home because we are not going to win this. About once a week, I will leave the house and get several miles away and then realize I've forgotten something. Does this happen to anyone else or is this just me? And in that moment, I have to turn around and go home and get it, or or at least I have to decide whether I'm going to do that or not. And it's super frustrating. I get like outrageously mad all the time. If I'm in the car by myself, I just let it. I'm just so angry. Just may as well be me. It is what it is. I personally, like I hate wasted time. I don't know. Of all the things I hate in life, wasted time is, is somewhere near the top of the list. So usually when I realize that I've forgotten something significant that I need, I have to go through this calculus in my mind of deciding whether I can make it through the rest of the day without said thing or whether I I really need to go back. And is it worth the effort to go back? I mean, I've already invested like several minutes or miles moving in a particular direction. Am I willing to go back on that, to go back and retrace my steps and get it? By the way, this is like a pathology, I'm pretty sure. So even when I go for runs, I hate retracing my steps. So I'll literally just like make up a loop just so I don't have to go back on the same path. I don't know, there's something about it that just drives me nuts. By the way, side note, in behavioral economics, there is a term for this. It's called sunk cost fallacy. People will often become aware of a bad or failing decision, but they will just continue down the road because they've already invested a lot of time or energy, or money in said decision, and they have a really hard time letting go of that previous investment. This, I think, is a pretty great metaphor for repentance, for what repentance actually is. It's recognizing after the fact that we've forgotten something, and it's having the courage and the humility To turn around and go back and get it, even if it requires some sunk costs. John's story, John's purpose in our story is to call people to repentance so they're ready for Jesus, is to call people to remember the main thing, to turn around and come home and get something that they may have forgotten. To go back to the beginning, to the very heart of it all. Because we're really good at forgetting that. To come back to God and his story and his love and his faithfulness. And this, by the way, is why John baptizes in the Jordan River where the Israelites first entered the promised land, which in and of itself was a sign pointing back to the Exodus and why he eats only locusts and wild honey, food he can scavenge for that he doesn't grow himself, that he doesn't hunt for like the Israelites did in the wilderness when God alone was providing for them. He's saying sometimes to go forward, you have to go back first. You have to simplify. Repentance is sometimes just about stripping away all the excesses, the accretion of things that you thought would help but aren't, and re-encountering God in humility and simplicity. This was John's task 2,000 years ago. To call people back to repentance. So they were ready for the joy and the wonder of the birth of Jesus. And this is our task at Advent this year and every year. Soon, we'll be talking about how Jesus is born and there's no room for him at the inn. A physical manifestation of the spiritual reality that he encountered all over. Our job is to repent now, to look at things from above, from a more objective vantage point, to look at some things after the fact and turn around from all the shortcuts and substitutes that we've been trying out every day and rediscover faith and trust so that when Jesus arrives, We are so ready. This week, with one week left till Christmas, how can we make this a time of repentance for ourselves? Not in some guilt-ridden, dramatic, self-flagellating way, but in the simple, humble way of turning around and going home to get something that you might have forgotten in all the overstimulation. That is our calling. Are we courageous enough and humble enough to embrace it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist, human advent, the patron saint of this season of waiting. Remind us that this season of waiting is also a season of repentance. And let us let go of some of the baggage that comes with that word and remind ourselves that it is simply a turning, a turning to come home, a turning to get back to the things that we can forget in the chaos and the busyness and the overstimulation. Help us have the courage to do that this week so that next weekend we can just be overwhelmed with the joy of the birth of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.